Good evening. You're listening to the Yena podcast. Today is Tuesday, the 18th of October, and with me tonight. Uh, so I remember last time I didn't even say who I was. I'm Craig. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, either, Craig, either everybody already knows who you are, so you don't need to, or nobody cares who you are. So either way, I, I honestly wouldn't worry. Or you're okay, just sorry. so gosh you? darn humble there, Craig. <laughs> who, who are you? <laughs> Sorry, sorry, I haven't been introduced yet. Nobody will know. Carry on. No. So joining me tonight, I've got Mark. <laughs> hey. Oh, I go <laughs> first for one. I love Thank it. You. I love it. It's like he's the need, needy one who needs to go first. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hi, I'm not so needy. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, so I also have some in-person feedback from um, somebody in my household who has been listening to the podcast. <laughs> Is it and your they... dog? <laughs> no. Because Darwin, Darwin's the only opinion that matters to me. <laughs> oh. 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 No, I'm interested in what Susan has to say. Please tell us. <laughs> she said that when we have guests on, we should do what other podcasts do and find out, ask them how people can follow them online or, or something like that which we don't do, or give them the opportunity to uh, shamelessly promote things. I think what's really funny is that a couple of our guests um, so far have been quite, uh, well, Alexander's a bit of a our favorite Luddite, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, you and I can't, imagine Tim, I can't imagine Tim wanting anybody to contact him. A- Daniel, as well, probably not interested in hearing from people. Um, yeah, and I honestly, I think both of you have probably heard my rants before about skeptical podcasts and shameless plugs and adverts for stuff that people pretend are really good when they're just lying to get money. I hate all that kind of thing. If someone wants to proactively plug themselves on a podcast, they can go for it, but I'd rather not give people too much space to do that. I love them. I love but, all our but guests. It's none, but nonetheless, Susan, thank you for that suggestion. I think, you know, when we have somebody who's a little bit more famous than the people that we share drinks with on a Friday, uh, we will we will enact that. Yes. When we get Susie on, if anybody doesn't already know where she is on Twitter, we'll, we'll let her tell them. <laughs> all right. So uh, first up, um, Robin, you're going to tell us about uh, Dr. Bronner's soap. Yeah. Now, do either of you guys, have you ever come across Dr. Bronner's magic 18-in-1 pure Castile soap at all? No, no. Although the the name Castile soap rang a bell for me from my childhood, so I must have come across that before. Well, I mean, they didn't invent Castile soap. It's just a type of soap that they make. Ah, okay. Um, Yeah, it's just, um, you know, liquid soap has 18 uses, including brushing your teeth. And and for me, no, I hadn't heard about it at all before. So thank you for introducing me. And I went out today and I bought some. Now, Bronwyn, you just mentioned that it's good for cleaning teeth, right? Well, no, I didn't say it was good. I said you could okay. use it. <laughs> we I have a toothbrush from? here. Okay. <laughs> and I, I have a sample of Dr. Bronner's soap. Am I going to try this and see what it's like? Yes. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Before you do that. Yeah. For the benefit of our audience, I think I should say that you definitely need to replace that head. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And this is why I'm using it, because it's an old head and it's probably not going to be usable again after this. So <laughs> we are all good. It's it's my changing the toothbrush head time. Thank you, Craig, for shaming me and my toothbrush. <laughs> I, I'm surprised, though, Mark, that you didn't take the opportunity to buy the uh, 
because I mean, Dr. Bronner's, they've sort of branched off into uh, making some fluoride free toothpaste. So, you know, of course, there's no fluoride in uh, Castile soap. Uh, so, I mean, you know, brushing it, brushing your teeth with not with fluoride free toothpaste is not a big step up. Yeah. Um, so I'm surprised you didn't do a taste test comparison. No, toothpaste, schmooth paste. We're going the full on. I mean, this is soap that what are some of the other uses apart from cleaning your teeth from? And we're talking things like cleaning floors, right? And cleaning washing your clothes. <laughs> you can clean your, your floor. Some weird, yeah. some weird thing about rubbing your body, but always towards the heart. Yes, yes. Um, God, and, you know, you, you do it over your face, your scalp. You put it's kind of like, you do, you know, you get those hot towels and you pop it on your face and you breathe in deeply. Um, it used to be suggested as a um, contraceptive. Oh, oh, OK. So the original one is peppermint, which is what I've got. Now, I looked online this afternoon just to check how do I do this? How do I clean my teeth with Bronner's? And I found a backpacking website from 2007 that mentions it because it appears their official website doesn't mention it anymore. The labeling doesn't mention it. Uh, but somebody, I found somebody who wrote a comment that says, I'm a big fan of Bronner's. I prefer peppermint or almond. The almond has a wonderful scent and taste. Well, tough. I've got the peppermint. Peppermint is very invigorating in those special areas when bathing. So I'm going to have to try that tomorrow yeah. morning when it, I shower. It's, it's known for having a bit of a tingly. Yeah. It's a real tingle to it, which is a bit so uh, alarming if you're going to be using it as a vaginal douche. <laughs> More than two drops and both types burn my mouth when brushing teeth. So I'm going to do two drops only mm -hmm. uh, with only one or two drops. So it has no aftertaste and doesn't mess the taste of food or drinks like toothpaste. So I'm going to try two drops here. We oh gosh. OK, I think that's two drops. But, but as I say, I'm not surprised that they don't lift, that they're not listing the toothpaste, the toothpaste use anymore in the labels, because obviously that's cutting into their market for the, you know, the proper toothpaste. Yeah. Yeah, no, okay. that's a fair point. Now they've got and another I product and they've got soaps for $14. All right, here we go. <laughs> oh, it's, it's interesting that it's interesting that the soaps are $14 because I mean, in America, they're, it's actually quite cheap. You know, you're looking at five, six dollars for the soaps. Uh, um, I, it's oh. really it's it's uh, it's a shame that with this is only a podcast because it's quite amusing to see Mark brushing his teeth with this stuff. Uh, it the the oh. the idea of using it as a toothpaste sort of puts me off. I mean, I don't mm. I don't consider that toothpaste and soap are in the same sort of category. So no, it's not good. Um, this is worse <laughs> than the cacao. This is pretty. I'm gonna go and spit this out. There's a bitter. Yeah taste to it that is not fun at all hang on yeah i wonder i wonder what the almond one would have tasted like then would that bit have been better i wonder <laughs> I, but, i'm you know, sure it's not meant to be swallowed well well mark's soul leaves his body um we'll talk a little bit more about dr bronner um you know he you know for someone to make a soap like this and for this label i mean if you don't know the soap you may sort of viscerally know the design of the label um we had it in the newsletter article and it's just this you know wall-to-wall -wall text of quasi-religious ranting um and instructions on how to use a soap but you get really weird things like um quotes from the army of principles by thomas Paine from 1799 um, you get a little bit about his history, um, you know, how he's a soap maker from the from 1929 to 1944. 
you know, a little bit about his moral ABCs, which he based on the works of um, Rudyard Kipling. And it's just sort of the thing that you'd have in your bathroom to read and really freak out, you know, your mother-in-law if you didn't like her. Yeah, Bronwyn, you have like a liter bottle there. I bought, I think, 237 mil, and you've really gone all out with that one. Do you actually use this at home? Every occasionally, occasionally. uh, But now that we don't really have um, enough floors to mop, we have a lot of carpet. It's just there's no point. So I don't even go through the chemical stuff that we use, you know, the chemical cleaners that quickly. So... So I you're not it using hand. it to brush your teeth. No, you should I like try my fluoride, it. And unfortunately, Hutt's fluoride supply is not in good nick. So <laughs> I need to, uh, I, despite what Lisa Bronner says, uh, no, my water supply does not give me enough fluoride. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that this taste isn't going to go away anytime soon. This is really unfortunate. <laughs> but I guess, you know, if you're a backpacker and you have a big thing of Bronner's, you know, it does your hair, it does your face, you can use it to clean your body, and then it's a little bit of extra teeth. And you just can't, you know, it's, again, in the US, it is so cheap to buy. And, you know, if you lo- use a little tiny bit of it, because you have to dilute it. Um, so where can you buy it here? You can buy it pretty much at your Common Sense Organics, your sort of green organic food stores. In the cleaning section next to all the other green washing products. But for all intents and purposes, it seems that, you know, it's a company that keeps pretty close to what their ethos is or brand, even if it's brand, even if it's commercial and corporate, they keep to it. You know, um, they're one of the first companies to use hemp and, you know, they quickly nearly fell foul with the law in the US with the FDA. Um, so they, you know, they successfully took the U.S. government to court a couple of times just so they can use, you know, hemp products in the, you know, and right. they're doing some really interesting stuff in terms of trying to get proper organic labeling to get other companies to sort of adhere to standards when they label their products as organic and similar to um, adhere to that, which is, you know, it's interesting what they're doing. Mm. As a, as a corporate entity, because a lot of these sort of companies from the 60s and 70s have fallen away from their original philosophy. So to see a company right. that actually has gotten more radical over time is uh, <laughs> quite intriguing because you think, again, you look at this label and you think, God, this man's a hippie. He's a he's wild. Um, in many ways, he was quite conservative and right wing. Um, he was mm. anti-communist. He was anti-fluoride. Um, he would be writing letters to the FBI. You come across a couple of hints that he was maybe a little bit homophobic, whereas his kids and he was anti-drugs, you know, anti-smoking. And his grandkids are, you know, I think the cosmic engagement officer, um, his grandson, David, he's um, he's come out as queer quite recently. OK, so mm-hmm. cosmic engagement, is that related to the fact that we're on Spaceship Earth, which is one of the things that's on this label, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily know if um, that's necessarily the belief that they have, but it is, again, I think it sort of does lean into that branding. I mean, Mm. the main thing that's going on here by the the looks of things and um, from the first of your two-part article, Bronwyn, is Mm. that basically he had serious mental health issues and he managed to escape from a mental health facility, at which point he ran (laughs) away and started making this soap, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's also looking at his history. He did come from a family of um, Jewish soap makers in Germany, and him and his sisters were able to escape the Nazis by the skin of their teeth. And he tried to save his family, his um, I should say his parents, but both of his parents did perish in the concentration camps. You know, so that's traumatic in and of itself. And then he had a wife. Um, I think he had four wives and all, but you really only hear about the first and the fourth um, and it's the first who also had um, significant mental health issues. And that was quite traumatic for both him and the kids. And when you watch videos of him, he talks about his wife 
and his parents, you know, being gassed in the concentration camps and he sort of escaped the concentration camp. And that's not quite true. His parents definitely did die in the concentration camps, but his wife um, was sort of more so institutionalized and died sort of in, in the U.S., and when he talks about mm. escaping the concentration camp, that's how he dis- that's how he describes the mental health institution, and the asylums that he was in. Go on. So I was going to say, I've just taken a quick swig of coffee and I, I can refute what I read earlier about it not changing the taste of things. <laughs> it definitely does change the taste of things for the worse. Well, Mark, <laughs> since, well, since you're just kind of gradually going through the list of uses, how about you go have a shower and let us know how it, that turned out for you? Do you get the tingling face sensation on your face? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to leave this podcast for 10 minutes so people don't get to hear my amazing voice? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay how about this so. one how about a dash in a bowl to clean your fruits and vegetables uh um clean my fruits and vegetables i think they're yeah. clean enough already to remove the residue mm-hmm. oh right that this dirty, whole scary dirty. residue yeah. yeah scary residue well d- do either of you actually do that do you wash your fruits and vegetables before you cook them i get i do it to get rid of like big dirt particles I just wash it oh, in water, though. Okay. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Yes. I, I wash okay. potatoes. <laughs> yes. You don't want to be eating dirt, no. Yeah. But, yeah, but no, some people no. are quite fastidious about washing uh, vegetables and fruits to remove any unwanted Well, I mean, I see, I, see, I see the point in cleaning it if you don't want, you know, people touch apples. <laughs> yeah, true. You do, true. And you do eat the skin of the apple. Um, but yeah, no, having tasted this stuff, I'm I'm not going to start covering my fruit in it because it's just going to make the fruit taste bad. <laughs> make it taste minty. <laughs> so you're going to replace that head, aren't you, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Craig, I'm going to be well behaved and, and put a new head on my toothbrush now that I've soiled that one to the point that it's never <laughs> going to be useful again. It's, it could be a sales tactic <laughs> for oh. toothbrush heads. We recommend the, uh, Dr. Bronner's uh, soap for cleaning your teeth every three months. Brilliant. And then you'll want to replace the head after that. <laughs> the last thing you ever use that head for. <laughs> yeah, I want to replace my tongue as well, if possible, because it's not happy. But, you know, I'd have to, what came across with Bronner is that, you know, it's a, he, his family, you know, his sisters, even if he wasn't a chemist, you know, he had like some sort of undergrad degree. He was a talented soap maker, if not necessarily the best business mind at running the company. But his kids and his grandkids are brilliant in terms of their chemistry and biology knowledge. Um, his son, James, invented snow foam which is a fake mm. snow that's used on Hollywood sets. And they actually still use today. They take this machine to festivals like Burning Man and they have a, you know, especially made plexiglass box and people hang out in there and they have a phone party. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah. As I said, they do some pretty good stuff for their customers. Now you can sort of look at it all askance, you know, how impressive is it that you're, you know, that you cap your executive salaries to five times the amount paid to the lowest paid employee who's been there for five years, you know? That's okay, your executives are making $300,000, which is, you know, wow, that's pretty admirable for a, you know, multi-million dollar company. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, don't you want to boost up those wages? <laughs> What's your mm. what's your perspective here? But they do spend, you know, they have this new program that they're starting out, which is uh, funding drug therapy. Um, I should say psychedelic therapy for mental health and anxiety for both their employees and uh, their fam- the employees' family members. So you know, you're looking at you know a few thousand dollars a pop for a six week treatment of ketamine, um, and they're hoping to wow. expand that to MDMA. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think the street price of ketamine is a lot less than that. 
but you know that's the same thing with all drugs <laughs> you know if you're getting it from the doctor it's going to be a little bit expensive <laughs> in the u.s at least i remember that being like the big controversy about you know legalizing weed in canada is that you know as soon as it gets legalized it's going to get really expensive because now all of a sudden it's you know it's worth it for the uh, drug companies to you know market it and sell it and test it and need to make sure it's not cut with ecstasy and weed come Mm. with ecstasy why why would anybody even bother (laughs) sounds sounds like a way to lose money if you're putting a more expensive drug into a uh, a cheaper drug yes that does sound a little odd so I wrote a piece in the newsletter about um, Alex Jones. So uh, we've had some some good news about Alex Jones over the last few days. So Alex Jones, I'm sure everybody knows, is a conspiracy theorist and extreme right-wing uh, person who runs the InfoWars uh, website and, and his radio show or internet show um, where he basically rants about things uh and uh this is all in aid of um supporting his business his infowars store that sells all sorts of dodgy products um such as uh things that um that don't seem to have any effect <laughs> pretty much everything he sells i think you know just the first look of it it's like that's not going to work it's the standard alt-med unproven yeah. nonsense with a tiny amount of some supposedly active ingredient that's never been properly tested. Yes. Uh, so uh, I heard somebody refer to virtually all his products as being uh, the equivalent of expensive trucker speed. Um, <laughs> 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 so uh, I hadn't heard that term before, but I'm assuming it means it's basically extremely high levels of um, caffeine um, <laughs> to to make you feel good. But, yeah, so he he has these products, something called Survival Shield, that uh, supposedly has this uh, elemental iodine in it that uh, is meant to somehow boost your immune system and uh, all that sort of bullshit stuff. And I found a really interesting phrase from the marketing site for that. Uh, apparently, there is thermodynamic pressure-sensitive, high-energy, sound-pulse nano-emulsion technology. What? (laughs) So break down each one of those words. Do any of them make sense together? Uh, No, I don't don't think so. Uh, Well, nano-emulsion technology, maybe there's something that somehow coats the the capsules, but but then this this product that that it's for is is a drop that you meant to stick on your tongue. So I'm not sure how that would work. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, it's just complete bullshit. And it makes you think that somebody just used one of those um, phrase generators on the internet in order to uh, to come up with that. Um, so I, I was bombarded a few months ago. I wrote about this in the newsletter back in the day. But um, back when I was monitoring Counterspin a few months ago, they... And I don't have to monitor them anymore because they're not making videos because they've been banned from using the internet, both Kelvin and um, Hannah. But yeah, so back when they were still making videos, they moved their hosting across to Alex Jones's video hosting platform, which meant that I had to watch an 
awful Alex Jones advert before every episode. And the stuff that I saw there again and again. So there was bodies, which I think was for dieting um, or no, maybe something else with the body. I think that one had turmeric in it. There was diet force, which definitely was a diet pill that didn't work. And then Insta hard. And I just, so, I mean, like seeing Alex Jones advertising Instahard was painful to watch. And the diet force, I mean, he looked at the camera and just goes, I'm still a fat ass, but these pills can. <laughs> and it was like, well, how much of an advert are you for these pills when you are that large? It's, it's obviously I, not working. What what kind of confidence does this man have? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I, yeah, so I went and visited the InfoWars site and I, started watching um, the video platform, which is called band.video. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's one of these typical um, YouTube ripoffs that they have the sort of same sort of style, but this one's worse because you can't change the playback speed. So you actually have to sit through at one time's speed watching this. And I, I happened to start watching David Icke, which is he's hosted on that, on that channel as well. So um, it seems they sort of host all of these weird uh, conspiracy theorists together. But yeah, so the 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 very good news that came out about uh, Alex Jones last week is that um, there's been this court case in which um, the Sandy Hook victims took against him for defamation, amongst other things, uh, harassment and all that sort of thing. And so essentially Alex Jones ended up not really defending himself in the case. And so the judge entered default judgment, which meant that the plaintiffs automatically won their case. I so mean, I mean, you, you say he didn't really defend himself. I mean, he didn't. He, what he didn't do is help himself in any way whatsoever. No, no. So he didn't. He didn't really participate in the discovery process. He didn't. Uh, he tried to tried to be deceptive when when there was discovery going on and providing um, fake um, sets of books and stuff, and then claiming that he had no messages on his phone in relation to Sandy Hook. Um, and then there was that there was that moment in court uh, a couple of months ago where the uh, the lawyer for the plaintiffs revealed that uh, Alex Jones's lawyer had completely stuffed up by sending uh, him his entire cell phone transcript, uh, and and the the lawyer told Alex Jones's lawyer, "Oh, but look, you've done this," and then uh, the lawyer did nothing about it. And so after the the two weeks or whatever had elapsed, then they were allowed to use it. <laughs> I mean, do we know yeah. anything about Alex Jones's lawyer? Because that seems like really, like you know, egregious yes. in terms of a, in terms of like you know legal error for your client. Well, so so the the there have been the lawyers. I did read something about how lawyers have actually applied to the court to be released um, from the case to no longer be Alex Jones's lawyer, but they've had that application turned down, yeah. so they're still forced to be his lawyer. <laughs> oh so no. So could but this yeah. be like a mistrial, though? Oh no, no. So, so the the default judgment basically meant that uh, he'd lost the case, mm. and then there was a jury trial that ended last week that mm, decided okay. the amount of compensation that the plaintiffs would receive from Alex Jones, and that amounted to nine hundred sixty five million US dollars. <laughs> so. So this is this is um, compensatory damages that have been awarded against the plaintiffs. 
and there's a case coming up next month which decides the um, punitive damages. So those are the – that's the money. So a judge decides how much money Alex Jones would have to pay in order to punish him for the things that he did. So and the things that he did with telling all these lies about um, the Sandy Hook victims and so on, calling them crisis actors and um, saying that it was a it was staged and it was a hoax and never happened. And the the result of him doing all that stuff meant that uh, people who watched his show went out and harassed the families of the Sandy Hook shooting victims, and that's what they were going to court over. So. Uh, Alex Jones is claiming that he's he's nearly bankrupt, that he only has a couple of million dollars, which um, that sounds pretty good to me to have a couple of million dollars and I think it makes you close to bankrupt. But um, but that is all bullshit anyway because uh, he's he's got companies that have a lot of um, assets and they have done some analysis on his finances and he's estimated to be worth between 120 and 250 million US dollars. Um, so he's certainly certainly got some money, uh, but he's he's got all these companies, uh, these sort of shell companies, a complex network of companies that he's using to sort of hide these assets. Um, and he's making quite a lot of money. Um, it was estimated that he was at, at peak times he was making something like eight hundred thousand dollars a day in sales on um, this the stuff that he sells through his store uh, and. Back in 2017, there was a piece, I think it was in BuzzFeed News, where they did analysis of some of the products from his um, his shop. And it obviously, it came out and turned out they were crap. And the sales went up after that um, article. So as they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. I mean, <sighs> I, would, I would expect that there was a whole market of people like Mark, um, so to speak, who would buy these sham products for their collection. <laughs> I think there's a small market of people like me. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a lot of people out there buying nonsense deliberately. I don't know. I think people are, you know, people tend to jump on the collectible cha- train pretty pretty quickly nowadays. So I'd say people were picking up some of the stuff in advance. Yeah, maybe. So, uh, yeah, yeah so me and my so, Dr. Bronner's soap will, uh, will agree with you on this one. Yeah. The, there's, the big question is whether or not the uh, plaintiffs will actually see any of this money. Um, and Alex Jones didn't actually attend the trial where the where verdicts were, were read out. He was live. He was doing a live show at the time and watching the trial and laughing uh, and mocking uh, the trial at each of the, each of the uh, decisions coming out. That's pretty and saying essentially, essentially, ah, this is hilarious. They're not going to get any of the money. Um, but that really isn't the case. So um, over the last month, uh, couple of months, he's been trying to move money around in his companies, and he his parents own a company which are now listed as a creditor for one of his companies uh, called Free Speech Systems. And uh, so apparently it looks like he's trying to drain the company's of money so that he can get it personally, uh, and there is this fifty-four million dollar debt that um, that Free Speech Systems owes to Alex Jones's parents. Uh, but anyway, it, it appears from from the the podcast that I've listened to, the, the YouTube videos I've seen, that this is all not going to work out for him uh, because the bankruptcy court can kind of look into those sort of suspicious relationships and. 
those companies are in bankruptcy protection now, which means that they're not really under Alex Jones's control. Um, so when when you get into bankruptcy protection, then you have a lot less control over the company. You can't just go willy nilly um, withdrawing money out of it for your own purposes. Mm-hmm. So um, it looks it looks like um, because the the judgments are so high, um, lawyers are very incentivized to do lots of stuff in order to get that money out of uh, Alex Jones because they want to get paid as well. <laughs> so they will get paid a percentage of whatever money uh, is recovered to pay to the the plaintiffs. So um yeah, Alex Jones's life is going to be um it's going to be hell for the next uh this several decades probably. This bankruptcy protection. I I get that normally bankruptcy protection is a good thing, right? It's it's an effort to keep a company afloat even when things are going wrong so it can keep making money the problem i have in this case of course is that alex's jones's info wars and his other business interests are not doing anything positive for the american community or wider they're spreading misinformation they're selling pills that don't do anything i mean there's there's nothing positive the longer it goes on the more damage it's going to do so it kind of feels like in this case they should be shuttering the company as soon as they possibly can yeah, I guess the bankruptcy uh, court can't make those sort of value judgments as to the uh, they they basically want to protect creditors, I guess, in order to ensure that creditors of companies get paid as much money as possible. Uh, yeah, but again, of course, if that company happens to be a company that's owned by his parents, um, it hmm. seems like the creditors also don't deserve any of this money. Um, so it seems yeah, like yeah, the whole thing's rotten. But it, as you say, they they can't really make an exception in this one case. They'll they'll have a no. set of rules, established standards. Yeah. So so I mean, all of these companies, all these holding companies and shell companies, are limited liability companies. Which, um, but according to what I've seen, because they're limited liability companies, then in theory, he as a director of the company is not liable for the the company's debts. But because of the situation that he's in, it's likely that the courts will sort of see through that and pierce that that shield that he that he thinks he has with those limited liability companies, and and he will be on the hook for paying that money to the um, to the plaintiffs, even though it's unlikely that he has uh, nine hundred sixty five million dollars. He's certainly got a substantial amount of money that uh, and include well money and assets such as uh, five houses in Texas. Yeah, I mean, just so long as, you know, it's a big enough amount that it drains every dollar that he's got, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and I'm sure that um, the plaintiffs aren't expecting, I mean, one of the one of the settlements was up for $120 million. I mean, what can you do with $120 million? <laughs> I'm sure that the plaintiffs would probably be very happy with $5 million. Um, so they're probably not expecting to be paid the full amount. But good that his life will be hell. Mm. If, if only they could shut him down, and uh, the best place for him, obviously, is in jail. But uh, that does not seem to be possible in this case because it's a, a civil, a civil case. If, honestly, if if I didn't know better, I would have assumed that someone as rich as Alex Jones could pay for good enough lawyers and good enough accountants that he would be fine. But it sounds like the fact that people have traced the money so easily and the fact that his lawyers stuffed up so badly a couple of months ago, it seems like somehow he hasn't managed to employ good lawyers or good accountants. And uh, that's probably his own lookout, to be quite honest. Yeah. 
Yep, I, I think. I mean, there are don't limits. Under, to don't, I mean, how don't underestimate. Like, don't underestimate someone's ego. You know, uh, you know, there's similar things that are happening. Like, I follow the um, Duggar family, which is this family of like 19, 20 kids in uh, Arkansas, and their eldest son was accused of some terrible, terrible, um, you know, um, sexual abuse crimes against children. Um, against his own family members, wasn't it? Own family, and um, I yes. think, and child porn. Um, right. But, you know, they had tons of companies under his name and, you know, he was trying to get, you know, divest them or, you know, turn them over pretty quickly mm. uh, because it, then it means that there's like less money that you are liable to pay or you have to pay. It's really. It doesn't, hasn't he actually gone to jail though? He I is in jail. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. But there's some, like, there's a fine that's been levied, levied and, you know, whether he can pay it or not is um, dependent on, you know, if they can take property away from him. So the Duggars are the family that starred in a show that I think began being called something like 15 counting 14, and ended up at 14, 14 and it 14 ended and up at 19. 19 and counting, yes. Yeah. And they had like a massive bus that they used to go on holiday with that was just full of beds. Um, yeah. The whole thing was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, weren't they part of that, uh, I think Quiverful. it's called the Quiverful Movement? Yeah. Yeah. Which is that you don't use contraception and you end up with as many children as God wants you to have. Yeah. You have, you fill your quiver with your little arrows and they go and they fight. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, um, put in opposition to um, Muslims and Islam. Right. You know, you want to have as many, many little soldiers for God as you can. Um, but what that also means is that you are undereducating your girls and your boys actually don't get much of an education either. They are certainly have a bit more freedom in the sense that they can go off and get a trade. But, you know, who are they working for, really? They're probably working for other members of the church. Um, mm. You know, their education in the trade, they're not going to a, you know, an accredited trade school. A lot of them are going to these unaccredited, un- unaccredited um, religious colleges. Or for and they've obviously... Colleges. They, they've obviously not been using Dr. Bronner's soap as a, as a contraceptive. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe they no. have, and that's the problem. We, we didn't explore that. How, how does it work as a contraceptive? Uh, what's a contraceptive? Um, I think it's something that you use, on, or, is it, or, is it, or, did, or was it used as a feminine cleanser? Maybe I got that wrong, but, you know, it's, yeah. I, I imagine that if it's used as a feminine cleanser, quite soon after that, it would be quite effective as a contraceptive as well, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be one well, dip and you're done, right? Or if you brush your teeth with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> no sexy time for me tonight. Are... <laughs> or, or for the rest of the week, maybe. <laughs> well, given that we've talked about it publicly on the podcast, maybe for the rest of my life now. I don't know. I'll, I'll find out in time. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, Mark, you were going to talk about the 27 Club. Yeah. So this actually was um, a result of Bronwyn's Dr. Bronner thing. So um, Bronwyn asked me to source a documentary about Dr. Bronner from the Internet Library, which which I did. And I watched it. And there were some clips like historic clips in this documentary, which it said were taken from another documentary called Rainbow Bridge, which was an experimental 70s documentary um, about a kind of hippie movement in Hawaii and uh, Jimi Hendrix and his involvement with that. And so I, I then went and found a copy of this other documentary, Rainbow Bridge. I watched that and it just struck me how much of a mess Jimi Hendrix was, that he 
seemed to be very drunk in a portion where he was talking about aliens and other planes of existence with a bunch of hippies. Um, and I was like, oh, I, I, I know that Jimi Hendrix died young. I'm presuming it's got to be substance abuse. So off I went to Wikipedia to figure out some of the details. And while I was there reading about the circumstances of his death, I read about the 27 Club, which isn't something new to me. But of course, with my skeptical uh, head screwed on tightly, it was suddenly like, well, hang on a minute. Surely we can shine some skepticism on the idea of there being this 27 Club. And the 27 Club, for anybody that hasn't heard of it, is a club of uh, musicians who have died at age 27. And the idea is that there might have been quite a few of them, that there's a statistical anomaly. And that some of the names that of artists that have died at 27 are Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, as well as Jimi Hendrix. And so, you know, those are names that most people would recognize as being musicians. They're they're pretty famous. The Wikipedia page had another couple of names of people who I assume were famous musicians, but I'd never heard of before, maybe a little bit before my time. Um, and it had a quote that really kind of got me interested, which was from a music biographer who said, the number of musicians who died at 27 is truly remarkable by any standard. Humans die regularly at all ages, but there is a statistical spike for musicians who die at 27. And the article went on to say that some academics had um, done a couple of studies in the past, but they had like a threshold where they just picked musicians that were famous in some way, having a number one hit or something like that. But I thought that actually... There's a really good source of data out there, Wikidata, where they try to take Wikipedia data and data from other sources and save it in a structured way. And a structured way is a way where you can you can query this, you can kind of do maths on it. Um, and so for something like a musician, that structured data is going to have fields that record things like when the musician was born, where they were born, when they died, uh, the genres of music that they played, and all these things will be officially catalogued. So the genres of music, each of those will themselves be another data point in this database. And so kind of everything's related to everything else. Um, and so I went looking to see how the heck do I query this data in Wikidata and how do I see what ages musicians die at? And luckily, when, when I went looking, I found that one of the easiest ways to query is a, a very cute sounding query language called Sparkle. Um, Craig, have you had any experience with Sparkle before? No, no, it was a new one on me. Yeah, so it's the uh, it's a Spark query language. So it it looks a lot like SQL. I take it you had a look at the code that I ended up using, Craig. I took a glance at it. Yes. Um. So it it looks it looks SQL like, right? So it's got selects yeah, and select counts and yep. <laughs> and where's and stuff like this. But luckily for me, the query that I ended up using in this it's an online service where you can put your your query in, run it, and it just spits out on the screen what the results are. They had a drop down of examples, and one of those examples was for the 27 Club. And I was like, hey, like 90% of my work is done for me. Here's some code that just gets a list of musicians who died at age 27. And it didn't take more than maybe five minutes for me to edit that to say, 
I don't want age 27. I want every age and I don't want their names. I want you just to sum for each of the years, each of the ages at death and just give me a final number. So, you know, for musicians that died at age 62, I want a number of musicians that have died. Um, and so I, I did this and there were a few little issues with the data. So there were a couple of people that had died at negative ages, which shows that the data is not perfect. It, with these large data sets, you kind of expect that the data is not going to be perfect. Some people have put in approximates. Some people might have put in a typo. They might have accidentally typed the wrong thing. There were musicians or, who died. Well, poss possibly Sorry? somebody's put uh, 2000 and something instead of 19. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So 100 years out. So, yeah, off by 100 years or maybe a decade. In fact, no, a decade wouldn't be enough for a negative year. And then there were some musicians that were young enough, like ages zero, one, two, five, and six, where it's like, I'm not sure anybody could really be considered a musician by then. You know, maybe a kid can child bang a prodigy. tambourine. <laughs> yeah, there's the odd, but how many child prodigies are actually dying at age five or six, I wonder? So, yeah, I mean, there were a few issues like that, but given that there were thousands of records and there weren't many that seemed to be all over the place like this, there wasn't even any that were in the, you know, two, three hundreds. So nothing, nothing went wrong in that direction. But I grabbed my data set, which was, I think, a few thousand, maybe 4,000 or so musicians, um, and I was able to export it really easily as an an Excel spreadsheet or a CSV file, like a simple spreadsheet. And then I just went and had a look for another service online where I could upload this. So something would draw me a graph, save me the effort of having to do it. And I found a website called csvplot.com. So I, I shoved the data into that site. It drew me a nice little graph. And the first thing I noticed was that there was no peak at 27, that this was a graph where maybe at about 15 years, you see it start to go up from zero. And it peaked at about, I think, 60, 65, or was it 70? Um, and for about 10 years, it kind of plateaus. And then when it gets up to about 80 years old, it drops down the other side. Um, and obviously, not many musicians are living into their 80s, 90s. I made a joke about um, about Keith Richards probably lasting until 120. Um, but what I did next was I went and looked online to see, are there any graphs of the general population? And what does that look like? And it was actually quite good to see that my graph lines up quite nicely with similar graphs of age of mortality. Um, so again, that was kind of confirmation that my numbers weren't off, that Wikidata is not you know, a total loss as far as a data source is concerned. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's no spike, at least if we mm. take all the musicians on Wikidata into consideration. There is no spike of musicians at 27. And that combined with the fact that this earlier research just looked at the famous musicians and found no spike. Um, yeah, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of happy that I could do this little bit. And it, it maybe took me half an hour altogether. But with a, you know, about half an hour of work, I was able to get a nice little graph out. And and see mm. that this twenty seven club seems to be a bust. Mm. So do do musicians on average die earlier than the general population? It seemed to be the case from the graph that I drew, um, but I'm not I'm not hundred percent convinced that there aren't other confounding factors. So the the graph mm. for the death seemed to skew slightly earlier, maybe five to ten years earlier. 
um, compared to the general population. But I mean, you know, my my immediate thought was sex, drugs and rock and roll, that probably the the drugs and the alcohol are the part that are are killing musicians earlier. But I I accept that there could be a few other reasons why there's a a skew earlier. Yeah. So uh, I guess the 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 hard life and the the drugs and and alcohol uh, probably aren't compensated for by uh, being wealthy <laughs> from your from your music to to lengthen your life. I, I think this is a bias. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What about sex, drugs, and classical music? <laughs> <laughs> well, this this was another thing I thought that actually if musicians stretch back hundreds of years, then it might be the case that what we're looking at is, you know, the, the comparison graph that I use was a modern mortality graph. But mm-hmm. if a significant number of musicians maybe are two, lived 200 years ago or more, then maybe it's skewed by the fact that mortality rate was a lot younger on average back in the day. Uh, but at the same time, I know for one, a lot of that is child mortality. Um, so again, that's not really going to strike a musician because nobody's a musician. Hardly anybody is a musician while they're still a child. Um, but also I think because of the rise in popularity of music and the fact that, you know, in the modern day, pretty much everybody can become a musician in their garage. I think probably, and I haven't checked the numbers for this, but I'm, I'm assuming that most of the musicians in my data set will have been 20th century. Yes. No, so nobody getting overdosed in the opium den. <laughs> Oh, they all dying played violin. <laughs> but so, Mark, but Mark, you know, your 27 project made me think about another sort of uh, cultural meme, which is the celebrity um, death club. You know, the, that the celebrity death rule of three in which, you know, three celebrities. It's believed that three celebrities will sort of die in quick succession. OK, mm. so I've not heard of this. So this is the idea that it's it's a clump of threes. Yeah. Well, it, it's more general than that, in that. The, there's a saying that things happen in three, so any mm-hmm. any sort of event can be grouped together yeah. into but, three of a kind happening. But when a celebrity dies, people are a little bit more. And if you find that two are dying in sort of close succession, people are a little bit more twig to that. Um, and when mm. I came across a website called She Knows, and she gives about like maybe five different sets of celebrities who died in threes, and they've all died within a week, sometimes even as much as like maybe three days apart. Um, so in 2018, in June 2018, you had Kate Spade, who died on June 5th, and then Anthony Bourdain, who died on June 8th, and um, this actor um, named Jackson O'Dell, who I'm not familiar with, who died on um, June 10th. <laughs> so okay, I, I so know I one know of those three. I know th- two of those three. <laughs> I, I know two oh, of those This one's a handbag, handbag designer. Yeah, yeah. She's also David Spade's sister-in-law. I think it was. Okay, maybe somebody who may, maybe a group that may be more familiar. Um, Prince, female wrestler China, and the actress Doris Roberts, who um, played. Do you guys ever watch uh, Everyone Loves Raymond or not watch it? No, I didn't well, she, watch it. Uh, okay, she played so Raymond's mother. Know, she was Raymond's I only, mother. I only know Prince. So again, one, I, I only know the Jehovah's Witness from that three. Yeah. So he died. Um, <laughs> Dor- like, I mean, you know, that's from about. April 17th to April 21st, those three died. So when we're talking three famous people, it sounds like one famous people and two other semi-famous people that died <laughs> around the same time. Yes. Well, I think it depends on what age you skew. I mean, Michael Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, and Ed McMahon um, were, you know, would be very well-known names for a demographic of Americans and North Americans and say, you know, who grew up in the 70s and 80s. And, right, yeah, and did they, they all die? They all died within... A few days of each other, didn't they? Yeah, I think uh, as um, yeah, 
Ed McMahon died on the 23rd of June in 2009. So who's Ed McMahon? He, um, he was Johnny he was Carson's a game show announcer. sidekick, wasn't he? He was a game show announcer that I missed. Uh, okay. And then Farrah Fawcett died um, on the 25th. And then Michael Jackson died not too long after her. There we go. At least we've hit one where I've known two out of three at last. Okay. What about Margaret Thatcher? Do you care about Margaret Thatcher there, Mark? I don't care about Margaret Thatcher. I do know Margaret Thatcher. I know of <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. I wasn't personal friends. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, go on. Who who died close to Margaret Thatcher? Okay. Well, before the day before she died, a American fashion designer named Lily Pulitzer died. Um, then Margaret Thatcher died and Annette Funicello also died. Now, again, Americans of a certain age who knew the original Mickey Mouse Club would know Annette Funicello. So uh, I, I know the reference. Yeah. Because in, in the stage show Greece, there's the talk of um, Annette uh, being on the Mickey Mouse Club and starting to get big breasts. Okay. Okay. For the Brit in the audience, this is the last one. David Bowie, Alan Rickman, and uh, Rene Angelil. Now, the last one you won't know, but I will, nope. because he's the husband of Celine Dion. Oh, okay. Right. So he, okay. he was her manager. So again, you know, if you're in North America in the seven in you know the eighties and nineties, you you know this you know who he is, even if he isn't a singer or an actor. He's you know, the slightly uh uncomfortable he, so age difference between He was the, he was a producer, wasn't he? Yeah, he and her husband. Producer right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So if you throw your net wide enough, and given that, you know, we we have tens of thousands of celebrities in the world, mm-hmm. you can basically find a times when three people that are somewhat famous and one or two of whom might be very famous died within a week or so of each other. Exactly. Well, it might even be up to a month. <laughs> well, <laughs> you I can extend tra- the window to, to fit whatever you provide. Oh, you can get oh is this five. like Ken Ring predicting an earthquake on two weeks either side of a full moon? Yeah. I think <laughs> people are trying, trying to sort of do that with Queen Elizabeth because she died, you know, last month and then Robbie Coltrane died this week. It's a bit who's of a gonna... stretch. Wow. Okay, so but who's by, next then? But yeah, by talking about this, are we just enticing serial killers to start, you know, helping this along? <laughs> I just think of the Venn diagram of serial killers. Um, and, serial killers um, don't tend to go podcast for a listener. Probably killers... more of a crossover than you think, Craig. <laughs> I, I don't think serial killers tend to go for celebrities. That's the thing. This is about <laughs> you know celebrity deaths. True. No stalkers who end up sometimes killing or trying to kill maybe with celebrities, but probably not serial killers. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of uh, supposed killers. The good news uh, last week was that Adnan Syed was released uh, from prison after spending over 20 years in prison for the murder of his girlfriend, which he definitely didn't do because they finally got around to doing the DNA DNA testing and proved that it actually couldn't have been him. Do you, yeah, so- you guys know who he is? Yeah, so I, I listened to the first season of the Serial Podcast. It was, you know, mm-hmm. very well done. Felt a little bit one-sided. Um, which I guess it was going to be. It is coming from a certain perspective, but I, obviously it brought up some good points. And, um, you know, obviously it, it seems pretty obvious that he was innocent. The fact that the DNA testing didn't find any of his DNA, but did find other DNA mm. on her clothing, um, along with, you know, just how bad some of the other evidence was and how some of the experts maybe weren't that expert in the original <laughs> trial. Yes. So you didn't listen to the undisclosed podcast then? 
Oh, no. Did I get the wrong podcast? Was it Undisclosed or Serial? Well, no. no. So Serial did the case originally, and then um, they didn't do it particularly well because uh, they sort of came to the conclusion that that he might have done it. And so uh, this... These three people, one of whom was um, Adnan's sister, um, Rabia Chowdhury, and a, and a couple of lawyers formed this uh, podcast called Undisclosed, where they went through the case in exquisite detail and basically investigated everything and uh, sort of showed how badly Serial got it wrong. Um, so it's, wow. it's well worth listening to. Yeah, I don't think I've listened to the um, Undisclosed anyway, yes, one. No. So um, Rebecca Watson... Put me, put me onto that. Okay, that sounds good. Yes. Yeah, and I, I thought there were certain parallels here. We were talking at our Skeptics in Cyberspace meeting on Friday about the Peter Ellis case and the good news that's mm. come out of that recently. And, you know, somebody was asking in the meeting about how are some of the, the parents still insistent that Peter Ellis is guilty? Um, yeah. And it seems a lot like um, this uh, Adnan Syed case where the victim's parents are still convinced that he's guilty, even though pretty mm. much everybody else seems to have accepted his innocence now. that I, I think sometimes once you're told um, that someone is guilty and that, you know, by putting them in jail, you're getting justice and you know that justice isn't being done and you can get on with your life. To have that pulled out from under your feet is probably a horrible thing and not something you want to have to deal with. And I imagine just acting like things haven't changed and still sticking with that story that this person is guilty is probably one of the easier options to choose in this case. And I imagine that's the same with the Peter Ellis case that, you know, these families have spent so long assuming that he's guilty, that he was an awful man. It's hard to go back on that once you've kind of hung your coat on that as a thing that you believe. Yeah, I think so. The um, the, that, the family in the Adnan and Syed case have come out and said that, well, if if he's not guilty, then we want to see um, the, the case pursued to, to find out who the real killer is. So that they they still have, they have sort of backed down from that. But I think um, it's a it's a common occurrence in that um, the victims' families are often um, being uh, talked to by police, and they kind of feel that the police are doing. Uh, the job of finding the killer, and so they kind of tend to be on the police's side on things, even when the police mess up and actually get things completely wrong. Um, and the the Netflix documentary uh, "Making a Murderer" was quite good in that respect too, in that um, it sort of showed that it was highly unlikely that the guy who actually went to jail um, for for the murder actually did it. Um, yet the the uh, victim's family were were very adamant that he definitely did it and um, yeah, very supportive of the police case, even when uh, all the holes in it were pointed out and the, and how unethical the prosecutors were and, uh, and, and so on. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So making a murder is another good one. I think there was kind of a rash of these. Did it come in threes? Were there three different murder cases that became popular <laughs> at the same time? I think, I think it's just a simple, uh, you know, if one podcast is popular, then, you know, every other network tries to find a similar podcast. <laughs> yeah, yes. okay. Indeed. So uh, we've got the conference coming up. We do. Very exciting. Yes. Speaking Who of wants which, to say how exciting that is? I don't know. We got um, we got Peter Else's lawyer coming down to join us on Sunday. Mm. Oh, oh, so the, Sunday at the conference, we've got Peter Ellis's lawyer. Okay, that. 
I'm going to be there for that. I was yeah. going to just miss the conference, but but now I've heard he's going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome. And and what other speakers have we got, Bronwyn? Oh, we got um, Judy Melanick and her partner TJ coming back oh. to uh, talk to us a bit more about forensic pathology. Okay, they were amazing last year. Like the highlight of the conference last year. That that that's going to be pretty cool to hear from them again. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's quite a few uh, good speakers. We're not going to mention them all. No, no, still, we're going to uh... leave everyone hanging and, you know, <laughs> drip feed them over the next couple of weeks. But what is important, if you're going to buy your tickets, try to buy them by the October 31st. Um, we're doing early bird pricing. So that's $99 for the best weekend of your life, or at least the best weekend <laughs> to end up uh, 2022 on. And uh, But then um, from November 1st, uh, weekend tickets will be $109. So uh, save yourself a whole 10 bucks. Don't let anybody tell you you don't have a talent for marketing, Bronwyn. Yeah, I mean, I've had some pretty good weekends. If this is going to be better than those, I am really looking forward to it now. It's what you make of it, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) What I make of it normally is running around like an idiot for a weekend, trying to uh, fix things up and make coffee and, you know, organize speakers and stuff. Well, if you love skeptical topics, this is going to be the best weekend of your life. (laughs) But you can have a New Zealand at the end of 2022. (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, but what's that website, Mark, if people want to buy their ticks? Oh, oh, uh, conference.skeptics.nz. Awesome. And of course, until then, we still have our regular skeptical programming uh, this Friday at uh, six o'clock at the Internet Intercontinental um, Hotel inside in the lounge. Uh, we're having our usual Wellington skeptics in the pub. So come say hi, have some drinks with us, eat some food. And, uh, you know, pick our brains. Anything you know that's happening, Mark? Um, Skeptical activism next Thursday Mm -hmm. should be a riot. Well, not really. Uh, We just sit there and, and, you know, work and complain with laptops. But Mm -hmm. if you come along for the first time and submit your first uh, complaint, normally we start people off on an ASA complaint. But if you come along for the first complaint, you get a free beer once you've submitted it. So, Come and come and claim your free beer by complaining about, I don't know, Dr. Bronner's soap and how it's not actually good for cleaning your teeth with. So um, I should be announcing the Auckland Skeptics in the Pub meetup. <gasps> yeah, you should. What? What? Should Auckland do, Skeptics but... in the Pub? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've just been looking at my calendar to find out when it was on and it's not actually in my calendar but um yeah we do do have a um a skeptics in the pub coming up i think it's the the first tuesday in november um but that would have to be confirmed <laughs> let me just go so, to the meetup site and, and kudos and kudos to dunedin which had their next skeptics in the pub um, well they've had it they kind of snuck up on us and snuck past us but they had theirs on the 13th of october so it's great to see dunedin oh cool. very good excellent up again and for anybody yes. that wants to find any of these, just go to meetup.com and search for skeptics in the pub. And I think by default, it does an in your area. So kind of within 50 Ks of where you are. So your local skeptics in the pub should show up there. Um, if you want to subscribe or join or whatever it is you do on skeptics in the pub, and then you can RSVP to events and and come along. Yeah. So, yeah, the next one in Auckland is on Tuesday, the 1st of November at the Dyson Fork, starting at 7 p.m. Awesome. And you were at the Dyson Fork last time, Craig? Yes, that that I- is. We have chosen that as our new venue. And how is it as a venue? Was it good? 
Yeah, it's a it's a reasonable size sort of open area with a whole bunch of tables with a whole bunch of people playing board games and then us skeptics sitting at a table not playing board games but talking about skeptical things. What's their beer selection like? Uh, it seems reasonable. Uh, yeah, there seems to be a good selection of beers and they also do some um, nice sort of pub meals as well. Cool. So we were talking about crossovers between skeptics and serial killers. What do we think the crossover between skeptics and board game players is? I think there's probably more board game players than there are murderers <laughs> in the skeptical community, <laughs> by an order of magnitude at least. <laughs> but I think we have at least one avid board game player at our Wellington skeptics in the pub. So, uh, yeah, I, I can imagine it is it is something that a lot of skeptics enjoy doing. Very geeky pursuit. Right. Yeah, well, I, d- I don't personally know any serial killers. <laughs> Although I lived in the street with one for a few years. But anyway, that's another story. Oh, no, it's a story for tonight. <laughs> that, was was no. it you? No. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That ruined the uh, the surprise. Now there is mm-hmm. no surprise. <laughs> you have been listening to the ENR podcast. If you'd like to contact us, uh, the best way would be to come and see us at the conference. <laughs> I <laughs> like it. Well that, done. <laughs> failing that, you can send us an email to uh, news at skeptics.nz. We will see you all soon. Bye. Sayonara. Bye. Bye.